30 and 31. Jeremiah 30 and 31. Last week we stopped and did chapter 29, and we basically just focused on verses 11, 12, 13, and 14. Some great, great passages are in the Old Testament. We're picking up the pace here a little bit again and doing chapters 30 and 31. A lot of verses to cover tonight, um, about 64 verses, but it's important to get the full context of when you do this. This is a prophecy that's given that covers two chapters, and it's important that it comes together. Now, I love this study. I just absolutely loved it because when we're going through Jeremiah, there's been a lot of tough studies A lot of tough studies that basically consisted of 50 verses of absolutely everything that Israel did wrong and one verse of God saying, I still love you. It's nice to see the flip side. Tonight, there's a lot of verses of God saying how much he cares for them. So you've got to remember the context of this. We just went over in chapter 29 where Jeremiah writes this letter to the captives that are over in Babylon saying, yes, it looks like your world is completely falling apart. It looks like everything is completely done. But, verse 11 of Jeremiah 29 I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace, not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. And that was an encouragement in a tough time. What we have here tonight in verses 30 and 31, Jeremiah is not necessarily written in chronological order. But in the order that we're talking about, there's this idea of Israel being completely overrun and destroyed. And they basically are just gone. They cease to exist as a nation. 586 B.C., Babylon comes in, defeats them, overtakes them, and they don't end up being a nation again until 1948. Israel's birthday is just a couple weeks away here. And I tell you, don't ever overlook that prophecy. That's an amazing thing that just happened 60 short years ago. Unbelievable. So, with that being said, what you see here in verses 30 and 31 are what do we like to call a dual fulfillment prophecy. There are passages in chapters 30 and 31 that deal with the time and season of Jeremiah's writing of Israel coming back as captives and being able to rebuild the walls and being able to rebuild the temple. But as you read verses 30 and 31, there is a lot of references to something that is bigger further on. And you see hints of that. Look at verse 24, if you will, of Jeremiah 30. Look at the last sentence there. In the latter days you will consider it. God is telling the people here, you may not get all this now, but in the end you will get it. Israel will be the center of the world. When Jesus rules and reigns during the millennial reign, Jerusalem will be the capital of the world. And Jerusalem will be at peace. Jerusalem will be blessed. We have a responsibility as believers to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And if you really want to know what's going on in the world, keep one eye on Israel at all times. Jeremiah 30 and 31, you see the future of Israel and the blessings that's going to come upon them. So tonight is a great pick-me-up of a lesson. When you see what God's going to do in the blessings. Now, as always, when you're looking through 64 different verses, you can get a little overwhelmed. We always like to find our key passages. Here are two key passages that we're going to talk about tonight. This sets the stone. Jeremiah 30, verse 22, God says, You shall be my people, and I will be your God. And also Jeremiah 31, 1, At the same time, says the Lord, I will be the God of all the families of Israel, and they shall be my people. Now, we know this because we're looking back over thousands of years. At the time of Jeremiah's writing, that's a huge statement. When God says, you are my people and you will be my people, well, what are you talking about? 722 B.C., Assyria takes us out. 586, Babylon takes us out. So God, if you're so mighty and you're so powerful and you're so wonderful, why are we defeated? 
Why are we deflated? Why are we a destroyed nation? These verses are telling them to look towards the future where God says, I have not forsaken you, I have not forgot about you. Same thing applies to us. You may be coming in here tonight and you may feel defeated. You may feel deflated. God has not forgot about you. If you forget that, just go back to Jeremiah 29, 11, 12, and 13. He has a hope and a plan and a future for you. So those are our key verses here tonight. And he knows that it's difficult to do that. He knows that. He knows that in the middle of the storm, it's always strange to think of how nice it could be. We had to go do some traveling around today. So as we're traveling around, we're getting all the kids out. And our vehicle has a little temperature gauge on it. And at one time, I think it said 36 or 34 degrees or something. We're getting out and these little ice pellets are hitting us. Now, just two days ago, it was near 70 whatever. You forget. You forget already what it's like. And the same thing happens in the midst of the storm of life. You have one bad day at work, and we get to this, oh, woe is me, every day is bad, I have the worst life ever. We have one moment of sickness, and I never feel good, never, ever. We are so easy as a people to get knocked down so quickly. So when God says right here from the beginning, I'm going to give you two chapters of blessing, look at the first thing he tells them to do in verse 2. Thus speaks the Lord God of Israel, saying, Write in a book for yourself all the words that I have spoken to you. God says, write this stuff down. I remember when I first got saved, I was uh, a few years after that, I should say, I was a freshman in college, and we had this little campus crusade group that got together. And you remember back uh, a couple Sundays ago, one of the comments we made about Christians, how we're really weird people. And there's this magnet for weird people. Well, in this campus crusade, it was one of the weirdest people I've ever met. And she just kept going on and on about journaling. And about how blessed it was to journal and all this wonderful stuff. And I heard that and I thought, this just sounds silly. Never liked it, never got into it. And that was back, you know, 15 years ago. I didn't care. Now, last few years, guess what I do? I journal. I'll be in the middle of prayer and I'll feel like the Lord said something. I'll write it down. I'll put the date. I'll go back and look to see what God does. I'll feel like the Lord said, here's a great verse. Write this verse down. I'll write it down. And you know what? The weird woman from a few years ago, she was right. You're supposed to write it down. Verse 2. I encourage you, if you are doing devotions and you are listening to a message and you hear a verse and you're like, I love that verse. That verse is for me. That verse is so powerful. I'll never forget it. Oh, you'll forget it. Star it, mark it, underline it, do something. I'm telling you right now, and you can think I'm weird because I know I'm right and you're wrong. Go get a journal, write these things down, and as you do devotions, mark it. And write down that time of discouragement where you said, today is the day I give up, and Lord, help me. Look back and say, wow, Lord, help me through that storm. Write down the day where the heavens open. You say, Lord, I feel blessed to remind you on those dark days. God says right from the beginning in verse 2, write these things down because it's a dark time for Israel. Don't let them forget it. Same thing happens in the book of Habakkuk. You see in that passage we wrote down on the sheets. The Lord answered me and said, write the vision and make it plain on tablets that he may run who reads it. Habakkuk 2.2. 2. That idea of write it down so you don't forget it. You remember me telling you this story. Anytime I see this Habakkuk verse, I always tell this story. When we first started doing VBSs out here, we put the little 4x8 plywood sign out there by the road so that way people could see it as they drive by, knowing that we had VBS. Well, if you go back in time and you look at the first few VBS signs we did, they were packed full of all this information. When you stand two foot away from it, it looked great. When you're driving 60 miles an hour in 109, you didn't see anything. 
Over the years, we've realized with the VBS signs, make it big, make it bold, and don't put a lot on it. Why? Same thing as Habakkuk 2.2, that he may run who reads it. Write it down. I don't care if you're discouraged. Write down your discouraged and say, Lord, help me. If you're blessed, write down, Lord, I'm blessed. Thank you. Write it down. Keep a hold of that. And as you go back and look over your Christian walk, I hope you see growth. See, right here, Jeremiah is telling the people, write these things down. So they write it down. Well, what is the first thing they get to write down? Well, verses 5 through 16, that their world is falling apart. It is. Let's just be honest. Sometimes your world is completely and utterly falling apart. Verse 12, thus says the Lord, your affliction is incurable, your wound is severe. That's just life. Sometimes people call me up and they'll say, Pastor, I'm struggling. Okay, what's going on? They tell me. They said, I I think I'm depressed. And my response is, I'd be depressed too if I was in your shoes. Your world's falling apart. That's a fact. I think sometimes as believers, we try to pretend that those aren't facts. And we have to keep this little fake smile going all the time. Sometimes you're struggling. You're struggling in health. You're struggling emotionally. Sometimes you're struggling spiritually. Verses 5 through 16 This is a struggle for the nation of Israel to the point of incurable, severe, they're disciplined. Look, they're being devoured. Verse 15, why do you cry about your affliction? Your sorrow is incurable. Why even cry? Crying doesn't do any good. That's the first thing he told him to write down. See, I tell you this, if you're really feeling depressed and discouraged in life, just start reading Psalms. David was one of the most honest people I've ever lived. He struggled. So that's the first thing we have to understand. There is a struggle. And if you stop just at verse 16, it's one of those woe is me lessons and it's tough. But that's not where God stops because God steps in. Verse 17, I will restore health to you and heal you of your wounds. Wow, I love that. See, he just said in verse 12, your affliction is incurable, your wound is severe. Then he says in verse 13, There is no one to plead your cause that you may be bound up. You have no healing medicines. They can't do anything about it. But verse 17, I can restore health to you. See, you may not be able to do anything about the situation you're in. You may be facing a situation that's so tough, so difficult, it's completely above you, it's completely beyond you, and you are discouraged by that. That's when you have to realize there's nothing I can do. I feel devoured by this situation. That's where God says in verse 17, I will take care of the healing. God steps in and heals. Then in verse 18, God steps in and restores. Behold, I will bring back the captivity of Jacob's tents and have mercy on his dwelling places. The city shall be built upon its own mound and the palace shall remain according to its own plan. Now in the midst of writing this, that's amazing. Israel's just been devastated by Babylon. And God is saying in verse 18, hey, you're going to come back. And as you come back, we're going to be rebuilt. I tell people all the time in the middle of marriage counseling, right now it looks like this marriage can't be healed. I tell people all the time in the middle of just life falling apart, right now it looks like this can't be fixed. But God can restore. He can. See, in the middle of Israel at the time of this writing, there's nothing that can be done. This is utterly hopeless. God says, it's only hopeless to you. I can heal. I can restore. What's Israel's job? Verse 19. 
Then out of them shall proceed thanksgiving and the voice of those who make merry. And also in Jeremiah 31, 4, it says, Again, I will build you and you shall be rebuilt. O virgin of Israel, you shall again be adorned with your tambourines and shall go forth in the dances of those who rejoice. See, now think about this. Just, just set the scene here. Israel is so completely and utterly fallen apart that there's nothing anybody can do to fix them. Just nothing. God has to heal. God has to restore. What's Israel's only job? Just rejoice. Don't you love it how simple God makes it? Let Him heal. Let Him restore. And what do we get to do? We get to sing and dance about it. Because God deserves all the praise. That's the beautiful part about this. We've had so many chapters here as of late where it's just death and destruction and just awful. God says there's a time and a future coming for Israel where it looks completely helpless and hopeless. But God will step in and heal. God will step in and restore. And Israel's only job is just to rejoice. And God is telling Jeremiah, tell them to write this down so they don't forget it. In the midst of discouragement and depression, that they don't forget this. That God's going to step in. Now, does anybody have any quick questions, comments about the first part of this before we get on to the second part of this? All right, if you're going to flip your sheets over. First question I always like to ask is, Lord, why are you doing this? Israel does not deserve this. It does not. Israel does not deserve this in any way whatsoever. We have made an abundant case here in the book of Jeremiah that there has been hundreds if not thousands of years of Israel ignoring the law, Israel seeking after false gods, Israel just being awful. And God still steps in and says, I want to help you. Why? Look at verse 3 of Jeremiah 31. The Lord has appeared of old to me, saying, Yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn you. God just loves them. See, isn't that, isn't that such a simple answer? God just loves them. Israel has not done anything to deserve this restoration, to deserve this healing, to deserve this future blessing. They've done nothing. God's just doing it because He loves them. See, I think sometimes we forget that simplistic point of Christianity. And I can't remember who it was, but it was one of the greatest Christian theologians of all time. And they asked him a question about Christianity and what separates it from every other major religion. And his response was so simple. He goes, it was Jesus loves me and this I know. That's what separates Christianity from everything else in the world. It's a religion based on a love of a supreme being that we don't earn, we don't deserve. He just loves us. Why did Jesus die on the cross for your sins? Well, he knew I could be a light and a witness to this community, this area. No, you can't. He just died for you because he loved you. And I love it. He just loves us. So why does Israel get restored and healed? Why do they get the future blessing? Why are they the nation out of 200 plus nations in the world that God says, I'll take care of? Why do they get to exist after thousands of years of never even existing? Because God loves them. God loves the Jews. And if you as an individual, and I'm not trying to get political, but or we as a nation start to forget that God loves the Jews, we are in deep, deep trouble. Because God makes it abundantly clear in Genesis, God says, I will bless those who bless the Jews and I will curse those who curse them. And we have to make sure as Christians, as believers, we understand the importance of Israel. God just loves them. I love that. I love the simplicity of that. Look at verse 3 one more time. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn you. 
There's nothing deep to that. He just loves them. He just absolutely loves them. Now, he also loves them enough, though, to discipline them. See, this is where we start running into problems. And this is where people start saying, okay, you keep talking about this God of love. This God of love just allowed Israel to be decimated. God of love just allowed Israel to go through one of the toughest times it's ever seen. The book of Lamentations talks about how horrible it is. How can that be a God of love? Because God loves them enough to discipline. Look at verse 18 of Jeremiah 31. I have surely heard Ephraim. Ephraim is another name for Israel. Bemoaning himself. This is what Ephraim's saying. You have chastised me, and I was chastised like an untrained bull. Now, that's the truth. Ephraim, Israel, they got whipped. But look at the end of verse 18. Restore me, and I will return, for you are the Lord my God. Surely after my turning, I repented. After I was instructed, I struck myself on the thigh. I was ashamed, yes, even humiliated. Because I bore the reproach of my youth. See, Israel says, at the end, I see the purpose of the discipline and how the discipline got us back on track. Now, in the middle of discipline, we never sit there and say, Mom, Dad, thank you. Thank you for disciplining me. Officer, thank you for pulling me over. Because you could have saved me from something deeper. Judge, thank you for sentencing me, because I tell you, it's a blessing. We never see it in the middle of it. It's only after the fact that we realize, gosh, my parents love me. Gosh, rules and laws and regulations protect society. We realize that those chastening, those disciplines, are really a form of love. See, Israel, at the end, will eventually see it. But Israel admits in verse 18, they were an untrained bull. They were wild. They were crazy. They needed that discipline. They needed that. God stepped in. And so since God allowed them to be taken over by Babylon, it actually saved them in the long run. Isn't that a beautiful thing? Somebody asked a few weeks ago about did it work? When when Babylon came in and overtook them, did it really get Israel's spiritual attention? And we say from studying the Bible, you don't see Israel getting into idols like they used to. That part worked, yes. Now, by the time of Jesus, we're into this religious idea of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. But this idea of false idols was taken care of. The discipline worked. Yes, it was severe, but it was done in love. See, look at the response one more time in verse 18. Restore me, and I will return. For you are the Lord my God. Surely after my turning, I repented. And after I was instructed, I struck myself on the thigh. I was ashamed, just even humiliated, because I bore the reproach of my youth. I'm sure all of us, if we were completely honest, could give a testimony about some time in our spiritual life where we got caught. Got caught by somebody, got caught by something, or just got caught by the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And that reproach, that discipline, got our attention, chose us, I shouldn't say chose us, we chose after that to repent and make changes in our lives. And looking back, that was the greatest thing that could have happened to us. At the time, we don't agree with that. But in the end, we agree that discipline is worth it. We had a situation not too long ago at home where one of the boys did something that they shouldn't have done, and they needed to be disciplined for it. And you just, you just don't want to. You just don't want to do it. And, and, and Layden right now is our, is our little uh, you know, demon, and he just is awful sometimes. And so there was something that he did, and he had to be disciplined. And as soon as I take his hand, I would say, okay, Layden, let's go to my room. As soon as he starts saying, he goes, Dad, I promise I'll be good. I promise I'll be good. He just keeps repeating, I'll promise I'll be good. 
I know he'll promise he'll be good because he's right in the middle of that discipline. That's the promise that has to happen. And the problem is the discipline is supposed to be a reminder to say, I am going to be good. That sting is there to remind you. Because guess what? Every time we get caught red-handed, we always promise we'll be good. We do. The sting of the discipline is there to remind us. Israel had to go through this, and they had to be loved enough to discipline. God loved them enough to discipline. So sometimes in your life, when you're not spiritually where you're supposed to be, God loves you enough to discipline. And it just goes filters down. Parents, we love our kids enough to discipline them. We love our friends enough to rebuke them. Hopefully people love us enough to rebuke us and admonish us. This is the way the body of Christ works. Israel had to go through it, and since they went through it, it helped heal them. Then, somewhat, but this is also a dual fulfillment prophecy, in the future, millennial reign, man, Israel's blessed. And you want to be on the side of blessing, there's no doubt about that. Any quick questions, comments about that point here before we move on with the rest? Either Israel's future blessings that are coming, or God's love, just unconditional love for the Jews. Marcus. Yeah. Ephraim was one of Joseph's children. It was Manasseh and Ephraim. And what had happened is Ephraim had become one of the largest tribes. If you remember correctly, Joseph got a double blessing. And so since Ephraim got so large, their size, if you will, as the population, just became sometimes synonymous with who Israel was. So it was kind of like the tribe that represented all of Israel. Because some of the other tribes that we don't talk about, sometimes Zebulun, Ishakar, Benjamin, they just weren't very populous tribes. Ephraim was a very large tribe, so therefore it just became a name to represent Israel. Any other questions here before we move on? Yeah, surely. You know what? And you're absolutely right. The salvation is of the Jews. And, and I encourage anybody for homework to go home and read Romans 9, 10, and 11. As you go home and read Romans 9, 10, and 11, Paul makes this wonderful case. God loves the Jews. Salvation came to the Jews. Since the Jews rejected salvation, we're the wild branch that was grafted into salvation. And Paul makes it clear. Don't get so cocky thinking you're the one that God wanted. It was the Jews that God wanted. Since the Jews rejected it, salvation then came down to us. And surely I agree with you 100%. It makes no sense in any way whatsoever when I run into a born-again Christian who claims Jesus Christ and they don't like Israel. I just don't get that. It makes no sense in any way whatsoever. The idea of Christianity is means I'm a follower of Christ. Christ, who is Jesus, Jesus, who is the King of the Jews, it just doesn't make sense. And you look at the world today and you see this anti-Semitism. I was just reading the history of Israel again and about how in, in May of 1948, when Israel became a nation, about how immediately, I mean immediately, this Arab coalition of nations just immediately attacked. This deceiving hatred of the Jews, and not even in 48, you can go to the 60s and the 70s, I mean, it just builds and builds, and these nations, and, and I told myself not to get on soapbox, and I just, I don't care anymore. See, these nations, they just, they just hate Israel, and it's this just satanic hatred 
that goes back to the book of Exodus of, hey, we're going to kill all the Jewish babies so they don't become too much of a nation. It goes back to the beginning of Matthew when Herod said, let's kill all the Jewish boys. There's just this satanic hatred of Israel. And whatever God loves, Satan hates. God loves the Jews, so Satan's going to hate the Jews. And I tell you, we as believers, by what we choose to support with Israel, shows what side we're on. And to support Israel is a biblical, God-ordained concept, and I don't know why we'd go against that. I just don't. So, now I'm off my soapbox until someone asks another question. Go ahead, Shirley. Mm. And that's the thing about the discipline, is how much God loves. And I know we keep going back to this passage again, and I won't read it to you, but I'll just give you the reference. It's Hebrews there. And it's Hebrews uh, chapter, is it chapter 10? No, chapter chapter 12, Hebrews chapter 12. I encourage you to read it. It starts in about verses 5 through about 11, where God very simply says, if I love you, I'm going to discipline you. And we also have to remember that God's discipline is sometimes His way of loving. And for us as a nation, when God comes into discipline, He's doing that to get our attention, to say, are you going to get back on track? I mean, that's the purpose of it. Discipline is never supposed to be done out of anger. It's never supposed to be done out of frustration. It's supposed to be done with the purpose of edifying your child to see them make better godly choices later on down the road. God is disciplining Israel because He loves them. It's love. Anybody else have anything? Yeah, Shirley Jones. And that is, God just loves them. He just absolutely loves them. And we're going to get into on Sunday, we're in Luke 15. And Luke 15 is the parable of the lost sheep. It's the parable of the prodigal son. And it's a parable of all these things. And we have this mindset in us that when I get away from God, God's angry at me. God hates me. I can't go back. And really what you see is if you get away from God... God is pleading with you, yearning for you to come back into a relationship with them. And here is Ephraim, who, he, they needed a spiritual discipline. There's no doubt about that. But beautiful verse, like you said there, Shirley, in verse 20, this is my child and I love him. God wants him back. And amen, God gets him back. That's the beauty of this, is God gets Israel back and Israel is blessed and yes, it takes a whole lot to get their attention, especially when you get into Revelation, but Israel comes back. And as we like to say out here a lot, if we think it's good now, just wait till Israel gets it. And once Israel gets it, that's when the party really starts. When God has everybody together in one body, it's an amazing, beautiful picture. Anything else about this? Yeah, Jody. No, not that I know of. Uh, what you're asking there was, Israel, did Israel ever get it? Even when they became a nation, did they get this big picture that was going on? And I'm going to say the simple answer to that is no. If you go to Israel's website, the actual nation of Israel's website in English, they have Bible verses at the top of their page that are the Bible verses of fulfillment of them becoming a nation again. 
So they get it in the sense of that they became a nation again. Did they get the spiritual idea behind it that made them have a relationship with Jesus? No. And if you remember correctly, last uh, fall when we had Gabby Goldstein out here, they gave that prophetic update on what was going on over in Israel. One of the questions that was asked to him was, is Israel spiritually seeing this? And they're not. I mean, he said, they said they're just not. And he came out and said that Israel is a very uh, atheistic, uh, agnostic nation. They have this religious background, but this religious background is not a religious background of a relationship with God. It's more of a heritage of who they are. So to answer your question, do they get it? Well, they got the verses up on their website that say they understand the fulfillment. But no, there's not a spiritual eye-opening awakening to what's going on. Now, there's also other reports you hear from other groups that say there's Jews getting saved left and right. And obviously, there's a lot of the Lord doing over there. So there's always a remnant. The Bible makes it clear there's always a remnant of God moving and working. But overall, as a nation, no, I think we can make a conclusive argument that the nation of Israel is not getting it. There may be pockets of individuals that are, but the nation of Israel do not have their eyes fully open to who Jesus is. No. Anybody else have anything here before we move on? All right. Oh, yeah, Mom. Yeah, and I agree with you. You were not born in 48. But, no, I'm kidding. Um, Christians did get it. Yes, I remember there was a great quote by Billy Graham, which Billy Graham said, we're not going to be here in a year. And that was in 1948 because there was such an understanding of this is a big deal. And it is. It's a, it's a huge deal. And then there's a great passage in the Gospels where Jesus says, this generation will not pass away. And some people wonder, well, what does that mean? And, you know, you can get into the biblical definition of what a generation is or not. But God says this is a huge deal. And anytime I run into to people that say, okay, where are the miracles and the prophecies being fulfilled like we saw in the Bible? And it's like, just look 60 years ago. This is unheard of that a nation that did not exist for thousands of years has all of a sudden become a nation again. That just doesn't happen. And number two, not just a nation, a nation that is hated. I mean, hated by people. I mean, it's, it's fulfilled prophecy right in front of our eyes. It's unbelievable. So, anybody else have anything you want to say here before you finish this up? Two final quick points. There's always hope. Verses 16 and 17 of Jeremiah 31 says, Thus says the Lord, refrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for your work shall be rewarded, says the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope in your future, says the Lord, that your children shall come back to their own border. See, that was fulfilled. I mean, we just read a prophecy that was fulfilled right then and there. God said 2,500 years ago, that they will come back. There is a hope in your future, says the Lord, that your children shall come back to their own border. Yes, it happened. And you can see it in the book of Ezekiel, in the book of Nehemiah, when the gods start allowing the captives to come back and rebuild the temple and the walls. But there's a greater fulfillment happening as we speak of Israel coming back. And I just saw that word there where it says hope. Verse 17, there is hope in your future. Which takes us back to Jeremiah 29, 11, which we just studied last week, where God says, I give you a future and a hope. We have to get out of this defeatist mentality of, woe is me, it's never going to get better, my life is awful. 
there is hope. And how can God do this? Jump down to Jeremiah 31, verse 35. Thus says the Lord who gives the sun for a light by day, the ordinances of the moon and the stars for a light by night, who disturbs the seas and its waves war, the Lord of hosts is his name. If these ordinances depart from before me, says the Lord, then the seed of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me forever. But God is basically saying, is, you know what, verse 35, I give the sun, I give the moon, I take care of the sea. Then he says in verse 36, if these laws of nature stop, he goes, then I'm wrong. Because God says, I'm in control of all of this. I'm in control of the sun, I'm in control of the moon, I'm in control of the seas. If I'm in control of all of that, that means I'm also in control of Israel becoming a nation. It reminds me of in Job, and if you remember the book of Job, basically for about 36, 37 chapters, it's Job and his friends whining and moaning and figuring out the deep issues of life, and they think they have it all figured up. Then all of a sudden, Job 38, God comes upon the sea, and for a whole chapter, check this out in Job 38, God just says, where were you? Where were you when I created this? Where were you when I did this? Where were you when I ordained this? God says, you have nothing to say. So what God is saying here in Jeremiah 31, if I took care of the sun, if I take care of the moon, if I take care of the seas, I can take care of Israel. Let's go one step further for us. If God can take care of the moon, if God can take care of the stars, and God can take care of the sea and the sun, God can take care of you. As I like to say, don't worry until God worries. There's nothing to worry about. God will meet our needs and give us a future and a hope, just like He will for Israel. He promised He would. And as we study out Jeremiah 30 and 31, you see God's love on Israel. God still has the same love for us. And I tell you right now, and I love what Shirley Jones said back there, if you have an Ephraim in your life, a loved one, a son, a daughter, a grandchild, a friend, a family member, and your Ephraim is not doing what they're supposed to be doing, Aren't you thankful that God still loves that Ephraim? Aren't you thankful that God still says, I will speak to that Ephraim's heart to see them come back, be restored, and to turn back? Oh, what a blessing that is. It's a great segue to what we're going to talk about on Sunday with the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost son. Great, great stuff. So that's Jeremiah 30 and 31. I absolutely loved it. I hope you were blessed by it as well, too. Lots of good stuff. It's nice to have a little bit of a pick-me-up message here. We've had a lot of tough ones in Jeremiah. It's neat to see that blessing there. So does anybody have any final questions, comments here before we go ahead and close up? All right. Let's pray and we'll let you go. Heavenly Father, good to be here tonight. Thank you for your never-ending love for us, Lord. Thank you for that. Even though we may be the prodigal that goes back to the slop of the pigs, you still love us. Thank you for that. Lord, thank you for your blessing upon Israel. And as your word says, we pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Lord, thank you. Thank you for letting us have a part in your big plan of your love for the Jews. And we say thank you for that. And we lift this up in your name. Amen. All right, you guys have a good week and God bless.